forever. Dog. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I never know what shoes to wear in the summer. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink. I'm really filling out my timetables. What? Got a hefty schedule. Oh, what have you, what have you got going on? I just, I'm just seeing a lot of movies. Oh, okay. But now I'm, <laughs> I just, I just didn't, I mean, I looked at my, usually my weekend is sort of loosey-goosey. Not yeah. free, but like I could, you know... I'm pretty loosey-goosey. Now I got stuff at certain times. It looks very full to me. You know, I always have things on my calendar. And yesterday, I didn't have a single thing on my calendar. And I, like, announced it to people because I, know, I couldn't believe it. It's kind of great. <laughs> I still have to, like, do certain things. But I was like, wow, I don't have a single meeting I'm rushing to get to or class. Oh. or <laughs> Yeah. Whoa, I just blanked so hard. Am I still here? Imagine if, like... We had to host this podcast, but had no original thoughts. That would be. What? That's what I. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know. I think what are you talking tired. about? If we, if you had to host this podcast, but we had no thoughts, well, then we certainly wouldn't be hosting a podcast. Oh, okay. So I read a really, a really good book recently called The Power. Yeah. So the book is about. It's written in this weird format where it's like one of those like hey this is my novel i'm i like the people sending letters back and forth and like the actual book is like a fake novel within yeah. the world mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's a historical novel of a version of the world where uh teen girls developed this power to shoot a- electricity through their hands and how it completely changed the power dynamic of the entire world because suddenly women could overpower physically overpower men love that it was fascinating love it would recommend Okay, and with electricity out of their fingers? Yeah. And just teenage girls? Well, so what happened was something happened where teenage girls started to get the power, but then it it became clear that they could teach older women how to do it too because the power was in their collarbone. It was like in this weird part of their body called like a skion. I don't know how you would pronounce it. I just read it. But like it was like a power in their collarbone that they had biologically, genetically, that people hadn't realized until it suddenly became unlocked. So... Do like trans men have it? Well, I have to tell you, it was a very pretty gender binary book. They alluded to that some men had it, but those men were sort of like looked at weird. But they didn't they didn't get they didn't get into what would happen if you like went on testosterone. And famously, trans men are not looked at weird. It's so interesting because there's also this book called Why the Last Man. And do you know this one? No. It's a, it's a comic book. And it's it's like famously, I, I don't think they addressed any of this stuff that would like be relevant today. But it's about where everybody in the world, every man, quote unquote, in the world dies except for one. And like the world is run by and, and a monkey. That's a man. And then the world is run by women. Oh. But I think they like have and always. And a monkey that's a man? Yeah. Now that I say it out loud. <laughs> Because I would imagine there would be male of every animal's left. No, but just But this one. monkey acts like a man? No, he's just a male monkey. Oh, and then all male animals are gone, yes, too. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And then this one man, and then his monkey. 
If I'm remembering it correctly, which I think that I am. Anyway, come to us for all of your recommendations. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> but really, check this book was very good. And, it, it, and I don't necessarily agree with everything that the author seemed to be suggesting about how that would change things. But it really opened some questions and was interesting to think about. I just bought a book. I haven't started it yet called Manhunt that has a similar thing. Mm. Something with like a post-apocalypse, you know, future or whatever with gender stuff. Interesting. So I'm it's intrigued to start that one, too. This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. And book recommendations. And book recommendations. I also just got We Both Laughed in Pleasure by Lou Sullivan. And these are these are ones that are upcoming that oh. I haven't I, I haven't uh, finished yet. I'm reading a sci-fi right now. Which is what? Which is a little different for me. I don't know what it's called. It was I, I never see the title. What are you talking about? You when never you see have that. a Kindle, you're not looking at the book cover the way that you're looking at a book cover when you have a hard copy. So I just see the title once. I decide that I want to read it and then I never see it again. And you know that I have memory like a goldfish. So I forget completely who wrote it, what it's about. No, I remember what it's about because I'm reading it. So how, but I forget what it's called. So this is a great argument for buying physical books. I know what it's called. What? It's called Hail, The Hail Mary Project. Oh, okay. Does that show up? Is that real? The Hail Mary Project. Oh, my God. I don't necessarily love it. Okay. I'll be honest. It's a little boring. Okay. But I'm going to keep going because I'm. it's so a different genre than yeah. I'm used to. And I'm, I'm sci-fi curious. <laughs> You're sci-curious? I'm sci-curious. <laughs> they see that would also be good merch. Sci-curious. Well, we've got... One of my favorite interviews coming at you hard and fast this episode. Yeah, we've got an exciting interview with uh, Molly Wood, who is a climate tech writer. And just like we talk all about climate change. And it's just it was just like a fascinating and really uplifting interview. Yes, this is not going to bum you out. This is going to give you hope. So uh, Totally. And she's just delightful. It's so funny how like within two seconds, sometimes you're like, oh, I love this person. And that's no. how I felt when she came on the Delightful. I, I was like, hypotheticals is about to be so fun. And I then know, it was. And it was. <laughs> and later we're going to be talking about alcohol and our personal uh, experiences with it. Yeah, one of y'all left a comment asking about why I'm not sober anymore. So let's get into it. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question. International question. International question. Anonymous. Queens. New York. I understood that. Well, not everyone might know. You know where Queens is? On Long Island. New Yorker. People who aren't from New York don't know that. They think it's two separate things. Oh, yeah. Like, they don't know where the five boroughs are actually located. Yes, I agree with that. Manhattan, an island. Manhattan, an island. Staten Island, an island. Queens and and Long Brooklyn, separate Queens from and, each other. Queens and Brooklyn, two separate bureaus, boroughs, both on Long Island. The Bronx, just part of part of the mainland. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> native New Yorker Allison Raskin over here. <laughs> I'm just trying to make my mom proud. Native New Yorker. Okay, so anonymous writes TLDR. I'm in my 30s trying to get pregnant. How do I reconcile my years-long consumption of body positivity content with the very real instructions of medical professionals to lose weight in order to increase my chances at getting pregnant? Dear Allison, Gabe, and Melissa, first of all, thank you so much for existing. Y'all make my Monday and Wednesday morning so much more delightful and funny. 
I hope you all stay best friends forever. And Allison, happy wedding to you. <laughs> so nice. That is really sweet. My question. I've been married for about four years and I'm in my early 30s. My partner and I are hoping to have kids. At my age, I'm surrounded by people who are, one, having kids. I'm Muslim and South Asian, so lots of babies. Mm. Or two, struggling to have kids. We fall into the latter category. We've been trying for about two years now. We haven't reached the level of trying fertility meds or IVF or anything like that, but we've spoken to my doctor and OBGYN, and they've both recommended I lose some weight. I've done some research and spoken to other friends who've been through their own fertility journeys, and those sources of knowledge have both confirmed this to be a useful step to take. As we all do, I have a complicated relationship with my weight. I come from a family with a history of diabetes, high blood pressure, health issues, again, South Asian, and members from both sides of my family have struggled with being overweight or obese. Mm. I myself am mostly healthy and active, but by BMI standards, which I know are extremely problematic, I'm overweight for sure, bordering on obese. I've been consuming content for a long time about body positivity, what healthy really means, and productive and compassionate ways to be working out and eating right, like maintenance phase, etc. Shout out. It's taken me a while to get to a place of feeling more comfortable with my body. And herein lies the issue. I want to work toward having a healthy lifestyle and body to support my own fertility and hopefully future baby. And yet, in the back of my mind, there is a little voice that is a bit resentful that after my whole journey of feeling good about my body, I have landed here again with the instructions to lose weight and deal with own complicated feelings about mm. it. How do I reconcile this? And slightly different but related, if this doesn't end up happening for us, how do I deal with the feelings of personal failure that are already starting to creep into my mind? Thank you. Well, here's the thing is that pregnancy, we're not doctors, number one, but pregnancy is so hard just from what I've observed. I've never been pregnant where you start to feel like your body isn't your own anymore. That's what I've heard. That's what I've observed from people where like if you've worked really hard to love yourself and have a good relationship with your body and then all of a sudden it becomes like a vessel for something else and like you're it's like your self-esteem, your like ability to like have power and control over your body is suddenly like seeded to this bigger goal, which is like carrying a baby. It's it's you're right to be very shaken up by that. <laughs> And like very jarred by that. People make se pregnancy seem so easy. And so like, it's so natural and your body will do whatever. And like it, it clearly people, it takes, it's much harder for people to get pregnant than it's, we're led to believe. And B, like it, it is this like very weird trippy thing where you mentally, I think, I mean, just to me, not even being trans, but like mentally, I can see it being like a total head fuck. Yeah, I mean, I want to echo the disclaimer that, like, absolutely, I'm not a doctor. I shouldn't be giving medical advice on nope. this show. And then with that in mind, here I go, um, which is that a, a couple things. I think on the one hand, there is the possibility that there is some some medical bias happening here. Yeah, definitely. Like, I know of at least one person who, like, was basically, like, denied regular fertility treatment because of their weight. Mm. And then once they just like were given the regular meds, they would have given to someone else a while ago, they got pregnant, oh my <laughs> you know? God. So if you do start like the IVF journey or, or different fertility medications journey, you know, I think a really lovely question that I've seen activists talk about is like, okay, but what would you be telling me if I wasn't overweight? Like exactly. what would we be doing right now? If I, if, if I wasn't overweight, Yep. 
And so keeping in mind that like I'm not 100 percent convinced that like it's your weight. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm not a medical doctor. Sure. And so if we take the leap and, and acknowledge, OK, maybe it is and maybe it is having an impact, which, again, I'm not 100 percent convinced that it is. But like, let's go with that line of thinking. And then it goes, well, how do I rationalize that with all of the work that I've been doing? I think sometimes the pressure to feel at peace with something is more exhausting than if we just acknowledge that we're not going to be at peace with it. Yes. Do you know? The logical step is like, if that's the next thing that needs to happen for you to have the thing that you want and it sucks, it sucks. Like of just like being like, this is completely at odds with what I believe, but also let me give this a try, <laughs> you know? And instead of like having to convince yourself that all the, you know, the demessaging that you've been doing wasn't true or having to like ch completely change the way that you think about bodies totally. after all of this hard work that you've done or think about fatness. Instead, be like, this sucks. That's still my beliefs. And for right now, I'm going to have to do something that doesn't align with my values. And that's obviously going to cause me discomfort. But the discomfort will not last forever. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's an element of like, let me see. Instead of like buying it hook, line and sinker, that losing yeah. weight is the thing that's going to solve this. It's yeah. almost like, let me throw these people a bone. Mm -hmm. Let me try. And then... If it's still not helping, like remembering that, like, you know, your body, like there's so much anti-fat bias in the medical community. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's this thing of like, unfortunately, like your journey towards family planning is going to come with a lot of distress. And so it's like, what do we do instead of like getting rid of that distress? Because we can't. Right. Because mm -hmm. you're dealing with two completely opposing mindsets. One. One is that like it's possible to be healthy in a fat body. Mm -hmm. And two, that like my body is the reason I'm not getting pregnant because I'm fat. How do you merge those two? You can't. Right. right. And so it's instead saying like I'm going to live in this space that like doesn't really make a lot of logical sense. Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. But I'm going to like I'm just going to be in that space for a period of time. And then I get to return to a life that is more aligned with my values. You don't have to drop your values. You don't have to immediately change and drop your values. You can right. still hold those beliefs while you're trying to get pregnant or do this thing. It's not like you're like, well, now I'm a hypocrite and I can never be a person with good beliefs ever. Again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's very black and white thinking. And like a lot of times I'll like and not to this level of extreme, but like I'll do something that I don't necessarily like believe in. But yeah. it's like. Well, like I maybe I'll like I'll again like that term like that's coming to mind to me is like throw them a bone. <laughs> you yeah. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> um, because sometimes it can be like, OK, well, doctors, guess what? I did this. It didn't work. Right. Now, what steps are we going to take that you would give to literally any of your other patients? Right. Exactly. And it's also like the whole like not being able to get pregnant thing is so hard for people, like so hard. Like I think I think we do not take seriously how emotionally damaging that is for people who want to be pregnant. Like I take it seriously. I, I mean, I, we as a society, we put failure and pressure on the person, but we don't like give them the resources or care or anything to like, I don't know. We, we make it like, oh, this is your fault. It's very victim blamey. Yeah. And I mean... <sighs> That's just like I think that that during this fertility journey, if you're in a place where you can like having a therapist mm. would be really helpful because it's going to bring up a lot of bad feelings for you. And like, you know, sort of like prevent putting preventive measures in place so that you don't go down that self-blaming route. Mm -hmm. 
because there's so many people that struggle with this. I mean, my partner, John, is an IVF baby. And I think he was like like the eighth try or something. And I could tell that about him. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what that means. But, I'm you know, just like, kidding. like, you know, and, and and a lot of people can't, you know, they actually like won a lawsuit that like allowed them to like keep going. But like a lot of wow. people like can't afford, afford to. that. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, how much do you brace yourself for a bad outcome that might not even happen. Right. And I don't want you to be doing too much of that. You know, like you haven't tried IVF. You haven't seen teams who have tried, Mm -hmm. you know, the like the more specific fertility treatments. And so just keeping an open mind, but also like, you know, starting to plant the seeds that like if your life doesn't look exactly the way that you thought it would, would that be okay? And you're really nowhere near that. No. Here's my thing, and not to get all woo-woo, but, you know, the medical community can be, like you said, hit or miss. I'm wondering if there is some other more naturopathic fertility specialist or fertility doctor that you could see or someone who maybe is more versed in, like, Eastern medicine. And people in my family have personally benefited not in pregnancy, but in like chronic illness and in, you know, diseases and specifically my uncle uh, with HIV, like uh, they've benefited from alternative medicine. And so I think there is maybe something to look into, like going to a doctor who isn't going to be like, hey, you're you're too fat to have a kid, like going to more specialized naturopathic doctors who deal with different bodies specialists who are more familiar with fat bodies like there are other options out there that aren't just like this man in a white coat being like shame on you my sister saw a fertility acupuncturist jocelyn did yeah that seems so opposite of jocelyn no she loved her and like yeah she went to her for a while wow so there you go yeah so i think like i guess the big thing is is how do you not let these voices get in your head do you know hear that, other like, voices like Go yeah to other get voices. to other voices find community I think like talking to other women who are going through on other people that are going through infertility struggles I think that that will really help specifically even look for other fat people who are trying to get pregnant yeah because then it's like oh this isn't just a me issue yes totally this is a really hard thing to do and it, and it often isn't so seamless. For and you're definitely not alone. I'm sure people will listen to this and write in and be like, I went through the same thing. But it is it's yucky. It's like there's no there's no perfect solution here that doesn't come with some dose of, of discomfort. But totally. you are strong enough to probably to deal with that discomfort to go after, you know, building the, the family that you want. I bet even people listening are like I bet we have a lot of like, again, I'm saying woo woo, but I mean it in the best way possible. I bet we have people listening who are like fertility acupuncturists or who are oh, yeah. like, like that seems like the audience for this show. <laughs> <laughs> right in. Maybe you can help. Well, we hope that that helped at least a little bit. There's no no easy answer here other than to be kind to yourself throughout the process. And if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Up next, we got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Molly Wood. So stay tuned. back to just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous most controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough question 
Collins. This week on the show, our guest is Molly Wood, a veteran of national media and who began covering climate tech in 2018. At Marketplace, she hosted Marketplace Tech and created and hosted How We Survive, a podcast looking at the business opportunities and technologies aimed at combating climate change. Also just of climate change extraordinaire, founder and CEO of Mollywood Media, independent journalism and investing firm focused on climate solutions, which is why we're here to talk about it. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, a topic we have wanted to cover. I know. And I and I love the terms that you use to talk about it. Like even just thinking about like climate solutions, like can you kind of speak to like why the way we talk about this thing that seems like we can't do anything about can actually like get in our own way? Yes, it's funny that you say that because I just wrote a newsletter that was like, this New York Times article is the problem. I just (laughs) cannot anymore. Tell us, tell us. With this thing that I call problem porn, right? Which is, Mm. and this is, this is endemic to media. And there's this sort of this idea that we got to just take this thing that's a huge problem and present it to you. And then you go off and you do your thing. And Mm. most likely your thing in this case is despair. (laughs) Sure, of course. You know, cry, be filled with anxiety, worry about the future, think about what climate haven you can move to, et cetera, et cetera. And so Mm -hmm. I just had this moment where I was like, who's working on this? And I had covered the technology industry and business for 20 years as a journalist and, you know, had encountered all these like startup founders who were saying, you know, we're here to save the world. And so I actually started this reporting project when I was at Marketplace by going and knocking on all these doors in Silicon Valley saying like, hey, you said that tech was going to save us all. Are you working on that at all? <laughs> and what did, what did you find? <laughs> Not really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not very much. It is incredible, actually, the difference. That was probably 2017-ish. And the difference between then and now, I mean, I would argue at the time, I talked to a bunch of venture capitalists who said, well, we all got real burned, you know, in kind of the early, mid-2000s, investing in what actually is sometimes called clean tech 1.0. There was this big clean tech boom and there was a ton of venture capital money and other investment that went into specifically a lot of solar development in the US. A lot of that was based on tax subsidies and panels that were mostly made in the United States. And then the subsidies went away and China made a bunch of cheap panels and flooded the market and everybody lost a lot of money. So the tech Mm. industry had been feeling kind of burned and I could only find, I think, one proper startup working on climate solutions. And fast forward to now, And there's more money from venture capital, you know, in 2021 and 22, this may seem astonishing, but there was actually more private money put into climate tech solutions than there was into crypto. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it's just a huge sea change. And that's all I want to focus on. Who's working on it? What are they doing? And when can I get it? What is the problem porn? Like, what was so bad about the article that you didn't like? And what is that indicative of? Well, so this last one... The problem porn is my kind of catch-all term overall for, you know, the thing where we just write about this terrible problem. And reporters think, well, if I talk about a solution, that's advocacy or that's somehow. Yeah, exactly. So there's that BS. And then in this case specifically, it's this, it felt like this retrograde article from the 90s that was like, well, climate change is really bad, but it seems like no one cares. And they went, you know, found two people who don't care. (laughs) Yeah. And then said, doesn't seem like there's that much happening in society to suggest that people care about climate change. And I was like, and so I just, you know, had to. (laughs) Yeah. So who are the big people that you like think are really doing it? In terms of solutions or in terms of like good reporting? Solutions, solutions. I know who's doing bad reporting. Who's (laughs) 
solutions. <laughs> there is some good reporting happening too, I should say. What's super interesting is that the good reporting is primarily happening in the business uh, publications. So sure. really? despite the ownership, the Wall Street Journal occasionally, and actually I would argue fairly often, does really good climate coverage because it's a big business story. Same with The Economist and The Financial Times. And then on the solutions building side, I mean, the great thing is that, you know, I became an early stage climate investor and all of a sudden encountered this mass of people who are the most hopeful, energetic critters in the entire world. And they have ideas that range from, you know, I've set up a website where it's really easy for you to find sustainable solutions to all the stuff that you buy every day, all the way to I'm making leather out of mushrooms and I've figured out a process to like turn, you know, toxic construction waste into totally renewable construction material using, again, mushrooms. A lot of things come back to mushrooms. God, we really just did an episode too about mushrooms. <laughs> That's Earlier keep, today. <laughs> yeah, really. That really? keeps coming up. Yeah. They're everything. Mushrooms might be God, like a tiny bit. <laughs> wow. Well, I think it's, I think you've really touched on something, which is like on a psychological level, when you like tell people disaster is looming, it's like people shut down or like yeah. they can't handle it. It's like too scary. So you have to like minimize it or avoid it. But then I think when you take this route of coming at it from an economic angle and you're like, there's money to be made here in finding this solution. Suddenly people are like, oh, well, that's now that's interesting. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> like is is the way that we're going to make progress not through altruism, but through capitalism in a weird way. It's funny, I, I have this like speech topic that is the title is, is capitalism going to kill us or save us or both? Mm. And it's like, depending on the day, is a right. fine line, you know, I am of the opinion that like no lasting change has been accomplished without a combination. You must have all of these things of activism, awareness and economics. Mm. And if you just have activism and awareness, it's very hard to change thing at things at the systems level. Mm -hmm. And at some point, not that many years ago, in fact, I would, I think it was after, um, not the most recent COP in the Middle East, but COP in Scotland, which mm -hmm. is the big, you know, UN kind of climate conference where all these climate scientists have been coming together for 30 years being like, please, I beg you do anything. <laughs> A lot of activists and, and policymakers left that convention feeling discouraged. But I was having lunch with a friend who is an, an economist and she was like, oh, all the money people are stoked because we have realized that all of the money is starting to move in this direction, that banks and central banks are starting to see this as a systemic financial risk. That's moving a bunch of money in different directions. There are disclosures and requirements for how to do business and how to report your carbon emissions as a business that are actually generating a lot of change. and so. It was kind of this big disconnect, but it was also, and it, when the money moves, that leads to policy, right? And when the policy moves, then activists feel more enabled to say, okay, great, we've moved this window, keep going. And mm -hmm. you, you have to have all of them. In no way do I think that there's some magical situation where like incremental market-based solutions save us all. <laughs> yeah, No, but it's a huge part of it. And frankly, sometimes the people who feel the despair and the overwhelm, they just want something to buy. Like I could be like, turns out there's a shampoo bar. You don't have to buy like a bottle of water. And, and But I do wonder, like, it seems like, honestly, our biggest issue is the companies and lobbies that are making money off of gas. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
And so how how do we turn the tides against these industries that are ruining our planet, but are such money makers? Yep, absolutely. Again, economics, incredibly. And so the even before the Inflation Reduction Act, which I'll get to in a minute, there was already the economics have been turning away from oil and gas and especially coal. And renewable energy electrons are the cheapest electrons on the planet, solar, wind, and hydro. It's the cheapest energy there is right now. And so absent Russia invading Ukraine, Mm -hmm. we had hit peak oil. You know, that was like, that has caused this sort of short-term bump in the prices and investors got all excited about oil and gas again. But it isn't going to last. And then on top of that, we just passed in this country three bills not just one, right? The CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Bill, and the Inflation Reduction Act, all three are fundamentally climate bills, but especially the IRA. That contains, I think it was at the time that it passed, they said it has $369 billion worth of incentives and subsidies built in for decarbonization and renewable energy transition. But they have been, the uptake on that offer and the subsidies and the tax credits that exist has been so fast that now they're estimating it'll be more like $1.2 trillion. It's probably the most impactful piece of legislation, climate-wise, that any country has ever passed. It's incredible. And how do we get people on the ground to realize that change is happening and that, because like the messaging is always like, well, First, it was like, you have to do all this stuff yourself. Then it was Mm -hmm. like, no, you actually don't make a difference. And it's these corporations. Then it's like, how do we get people to be like, wow, this passed. Like, what does this mean for me on the ground? You know? Right. Totally. And yes. (gasps) Sorry, Molly, if you could just solve everything, that would be super great. We have about 25 minutes. So if you could just solve the whole thing, that would be incredible. I'm on it. I got it. So my, it sounds totally silly, but my framework for solving all problems is the title of my podcast, Everybody in the Pool. Like okay. everybody just do a thing, right? And it doesn't have to be. And and I, I was making that face about this idea that is so, it's so disempowering and defeatist to sort of, that we cause so many people to say, this is a collective problem and I as an individual can't do anything about it. Sure. Because what is a collective made up of, right? A bunch of individuals. And when we move in a direction, it really matters. I do not believe that we have to get every single person to believe or understand or know or care. Mm-hmm. My goal is to get like 20%. Yeah. Because what happens is when you get that early adoption curve, then pretty soon, that's the only thing that's on the shelves. I was going to say, because then it'll seem like, okay, this is the only product. This It's, it's like when we realized uh, smoking was bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like suddenly like there's other products or like nicotine gum or something. But Also, like now it's it would be we would be getting to a place where like, oh, you don't use bar shampoo. That's so uncouth. You know what I mean? Like we would be getting to like some sort of marketing angle where it's like, well, that's less expensive. And also like, oh, if if your date isn't recycling, don't fuck them, whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yes. Something I'm trying to think like messaging wise. Absolutely. No, I, I call it aspirational. Yeah. Like, I think you got to make it aspirational and marketing wise, you got to make it the cool thing to do. It has to be cost parity, but until it's not and that like, I'm okay with this, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Things start really expensive. iPhones started really expensive. Tesla's started really expensive. Electric cars generally. And and it's up to, I sort of feel like if if you're in the top, let's say 10 or 15% of earners in the United States and you're not adopting some climate solutions, you're basically a climate criminal. 
because you're the person who's going to make it cheaper for everybody else. You're the person who's going to enable mass adoption of these solutions. So like a lot of times I am talking to rich people pretty unashamedly because I'm like, hey, it's your job. Yeah, You emit more, you can afford to adopt more and that makes it available to everybody and you're, it's aspirational. Like be the cool kid. Or shaming the people that are like now the tide turning on private jets. It's really interesting. Yeah. Like shame is shame is a tricky one, right? Because it doesn't right. always work, but it does start to create personal guilt. And you are starting to even see people just say, I'm I have a budget for how much I'm willing to fly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you kind of break down the legislation and what made it so, you know, revolutionary in a way? Yeah. So what's really interesting about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it's, you know, like I said, it's made up of a lot of incentives and tax credits. And that's not, that's a pretty normal way of doing business, but a shocking amount of them made it through into the final legislation. You know, there's always some pushback and there's always some compromise and it's very frustrating. And there are some sort of dumb things in there like there always are. But the fact that $369 billion worth of, you know, incentives and credits for installing solar, charging stations, electric cars at just about Mm. every income level like that all by itself is amazing. But what's super interesting is that these credits are like, I've been feeding this legislation slowly through Bing and ChatGPT and basically saying, can you translate this for me? Because legislation (laughs) is really hard to read. (laughs) Some of these credits are effectively permanent. They're open-ended and you can stack them on top of each other. So like, let's say you want to put solar, you know, a community solar project on a church in one town. So you would you would already be eligible for like a 6% tax credit on that installation. Mm-hmm. Super. If you hire local people and you pay them the prevailing wage, like good rates, then your tax credit goes up to 15%. Mm. If you then connect that to a community solar grid, a decentralized grid, so that those electrons are like feeding the entire community, then all of a sudden maybe your tax credit goes up to 30%. And you can do other things to layer that tax credit up to something like 70% permanently. Whoa. Like I've had people who used to be crypto people come to me and say, I'm thinking about getting into clean energy because there is so much money here. And then the other thing that's remarkable about it is that most of the time, private spending follows public spending at a ratio of like three to one. So whatever that 1.2 trillion is that just the Inflation Reduction Act puts into the economy private money is going to follow that on with another three plus trillion dollars. So that is just a four trillion dollar investment, just like that, just spun up out of thin air to make this transition happen. It is massively impactful. And how much do you think that this needs to be an international effort versus like a U.S. effort? It has to be an international effort. The good thing about the IRA is that Almost immediately when it passed, Europe had a fit because they were like, oh, you're going to incentivize all of this, you know, economic development in the U.S. to the exclusion of Europe. And so then they passed a whole new package of subsidies to incentivize more decarbonization in Europe. Australia, like, got a new government and immediately passed a very similar law. It actually led to, you know, a ripple effect. Now, that said, and and the other thing that the U.S. is really good at, like, probably not going to lead on policy permanently and our emissions are high as a country, but we are very good at innovation and we are very good at capitalism. And so those are the things that the U.S. can do, I think, to sort of propagate solutions. But globally, 100 percent, the World Bank has to step up and start financing projects in parts of the world that cannot afford them. 
you know, we have to see a ton. There's a, there's been a really interesting conversation just in the past year, I would argue, led heavily by the prime minister of Barbados, who's amazing about it's the not idea. Rihanna. <laughs> you know, she's Rihanna, the president. She's the president. So of Barbados. Sorry, my apologies. Honorary president. Sure. <laughs> The, sure, the actual, pri- okay, go the on. The actual prime minister. All right. Who, um, who has been out there saying, hey, every rich country needs to contribute money to a pot to help developing countries who are going to be hit first and hardest by the climate crisis and can't yep. afford to recover from it. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, no chance. Now, that's actually happening. Like, we are actually seeing finance start to come together and governments like global governments start to contribute to a global pot of money to help the rest of the world. Wow. Like it's actually this really hopeful time. It's so funny that like, it's like money talks. Like it's so funny to hear you say that these crypto guys come over and they're like, yeah, so we heard that climate change is profitable now. Like you were just in crypto. Right. Which is by the way, anti. I know. (laughs) You're just doing the opposite. It's gross. It is hard to stomach. And yet I'm like, yep, bring me every mercenary asshole. Let's go. I mean, why do you think that people are are shifting in terms of like coming together now? Because I think one of the biggest issues we have is so many people don't even believe that it's real or like can't even think it's something to take seriously. Do you think that the shift is happening because we are seeing more and more actual changes in our environment or are the people that don't believe in it just ignoring those floods and fires and increased temperatures anyway. Yeah, I think, I sort of think two things. One, I think the pandemic, that a lot of people in Silicon Valley, at least, like I saw a lot of venture capitalists who had built their career on all kinds of technology shift the climate because of the pandemic Mm. and during the pandemic. I think the pandemic showed a lot of people that the worst case can occur Mm -hmm. and opened the aperture for people to say, oh, there can be really, really big global problems and climate is the next one coming. So I think there was like a subset of people for whom that was really a big driver. Then no question, the fires and floods and hurricanes and the kind of worsening and more extreme weather is waking people up. Yeah. And then I would even. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know people who I know one I know one guy who set up who created a venture capital fund specifically to invest in wildfire prevention because the fires in the Bay Area were such a like shock to the system for Mm. at least, you know, this part of the country. And I know at least two other entrepreneurs who started companies around wild wild tech specifically. Mm. So that's just a one to one. You know, they were like, I've made all my money, but now I'm going to turn my attention to this. And it's really important. And then I also think that this kind of recent uptick in loud and very coordinated disinformation and climate denial is 100% the result of all the progress that we're making. That is Mm. unquestionably the fossil fuel industry being like, oh, shit, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. real. How do we get rid of the fossil fuel industry? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) is that possible? Like, like, what do you like? What trajectory can you even see in like best case scenario with getting rid of them or, or minimizing them? I think minimizing is the key and the I try really hard to be honest about the transition. Like it's a transition. So mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. so in no way are we going to even if we stop using, for example, oil for cars, mm-hmm. we'll use oil for plastic and we'll use oil for the, the you know, many, many, many of the clothes mm-hmm. that we are wearing right now and every single part of your microphone. Mm-hmm. So there's 
this kind of petrochemical part of what we're doing that can't be ignored and isn't going to disappear overnight. The key, I think, is to minimize and transition. So our goal for the next decade as a world should be ideally to leave any fossil fuel that's currently in the ground in the ground. Mm. Like no new oil or coal or natural gas should come out. We should put enough, you know, we should put renewable energy everywhere, electrify everything that we possibly can so that we're using as few kind of dirty electrons as possible. And even though it's controversial, we should be figuring out how to capture and sequester as much carbon as we can. So we know that there is still going to be some, you know, oil refineries operating. And mm. and actually liquid natural gas is better. Mm. Like, I'm not going to go all the way to calling it a green fuel, but it's <laughs> way greener. I mean, it's unbelievably greener than coal, which we should never be using, which people are literally still are. And it's way, way better than oil. And so we have to get comfortable with like, one, the idea that there's not a, there's not an overnight change. Mm -hmm. Two, that there is better, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if not perfect, and that it'll take time. And so even some of the things we might think of as kind of unsavory, like, yeah, sure, there are a lot of oil and gas people who are very excited about carbon capture because mm -hmm. they want to be able to keep doing exactly what they're doing. I don't want them to keep doing what they're doing forever. But while they're doing it, capture the freaking carbon. Or can you explain like what carbon capture is? Yeah, so carbon capture is, uh, so far it doesn't exist at scale, but it does exist. It's the idea that like basically you would put a little hat on, <laughs> on top of an oil refinery, right? And you would catch the greenhouse gases and the particulate matter that comes out of that and you would bury it in the ground somewhere. Okay. So you, you capture the carbon and carbon is sort of, carbon is like, a shorthand that we use for all greenhouse gases. And there are lots of different kinds. Carbon dioxide and methane are kind of the top two that okay. are the worst. And carbon dioxide in particular stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years. It takes the longest to break down and fall out of the atmosphere. And you can capture those gases and sequester them in various ways. Most of that involves like burying it in the ground when people talk about planting lots and lots of trees, what they're trying to do is sequester carbon, catch it before it makes its way into the atmosphere or catch it as it comes down to earth from the atmosphere. Mm. So carbon capture is a little bit controversial for a couple of reasons. One is that the sequestering thing is kind of hard. Yeah. Like it's hard to figure out where to put all of this gas or material in a way where it'll actually stay there. We should send it with the billionaires to space. Yes. Every time Jeff Just Bezos takes a little trip a rocket. to He's space, we be... bring a bunch, he goes with a bunch of carbon. carbon. <laughs> I'm so in favor of this. Like, yes, please. Wouldn't that scientifically, wouldn't that explode? Okay. <laughs> if you went to space with a bunch of methane gas, I feel like you would explode. I only went to space camp twice and I feel like that you is might. probably a problem. You might. Yeah, you might. I think they like put it in limestone. You know, so it's like yeah. inert and then it's just a bunch of rockets trying to get to space. However, I would argue that full of limestone, the fuel that you would need to get all That's that limestone. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> not launch a, a rocket full of limestone into space. Probably not the plan. That might not be the move, actually. <laughs> but so when people talk about carbon capture, like there are some people who say we should not invest any money in that technology. This is like, you know, there are various purity tests around the climate mm. conversation. And one of them is we shouldn't invest any money in that technology because it just enables more burning of fossil fuels and more okay. of this industry. I am in every solution everywhere. There's nothing I'm kicking out of bed for eating crackers. Why wouldn't I want to capture and sequester as much carbon as I can, knowing 
that there is going to have to be some of this production happening in the future. Mm-hmm. We used to have this conversation about adaptation and resilience. So people talk about mitigation, which is uh, slowing warming, right? Slowing our emissions so that we stop warming. And then they talk about adaptation, which is what I called in my podcast, how we survive. Mm-hmm. And that's technologies to make ourselves more resilient. For a long time, and even in, like in Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore wrote that adaptation was like a moral failing. That if you spent any time trying to figure out how to adapt to climate change instead of stopping it, you were wasting that time and money because all of the effort needed to go into mitigation. Over time, he has fully flipped on that and been like, no, we have to put a ton of money into adaptation. Yeah. When we said stuff like that, we didn't realize that like Barbados was going to go first. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or East Palo Alto is going to yeah. go first, right? That there are parts of the world and the country that didn't emit very much and are at the most risk and cannot afford to deal with it. As a fan of the Purge films, mm. you know, like it's like they the the rich people have the means to sort of block themselves off. And I just keep picturing like the world outside is burning and all these rich people are just like, well, thank goodness I built my castle out of limestone or whatever. And like, like, what is the incentive for them to care about us? Yeah, God, I will tell you the only times I feel something close to despair are in the presence of the ultra rich because right. <laughs> that is a tough one. However, like you, you can get by for a while in your bunker. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. There are definitely going to be a lot of rich people who like flee to Greenland. Yeah. And, and that'll happen. Right. Yeah. And the worst of us, I'm sorry to say, will be OK for a while. Yeah. But there is only so okay you can ever be in the face of mass crop failure and deglobalization and deindustrialization and wars that are fought over migration. Okay. Like you can't, your bunker is not going to hold up if you, if there's no food. Okay. You're right. So they'll, they're, we're all going down with the ship. We're all going down. It's an equalizer. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. What role is factory farming and the beef industry playing in all of this? And how do we move away from that? So a very huge. Allison question. <laughs> Are you a vegetarian? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, that helps. Yeah, it's huge. It's a massive driver. It's like, um, I think protein alone is 60% of emissions from food. And globally, agriculture emissions are basically like a third. Like food production is fully a third of, of carbon wow. emissions. Wow. Factory farming is horrible. I think this is, an, this is another one where there's some potential moral compromise to be had because there's this question of carbon credits. And that's where some good thing happens somewhere, you hope. Trees are planted or uh, people don't cut down trees. Like it's a, def- you know, prevent deforestation by paying farmers not to cut down trees. And then that generates a credit that someone else can buy to help mm-hmm. continuing to pay, continue to pay these farmers. There's starting to be conversations more and more about paying farmers in the United States to do regenerative agriculture. Because one of the things that happens is that soil holds a lot of carbon. It sequesters a lot of carbon. And so when agriculture operations till, when they just go through and just plow it all up, it releases all that carbon into the air. Mm. And it like strips the soil and makes it incapable of being this rich, peaty, like yummy brown dirt that can hold a bunch of carbon. So there are different (laughs) ways to do agriculture that are 
sequester more carbon or don't release as much. And we're using credits and paying people to do that instead. And then there is just this like wholesale question about meat. The ideal is to eat less. I just did a panel though with a bunch of entrepreneurs who are figuring out different inputs. Like one is growing what I call Petri meat. Like lab, it's, it's real meat cells. Yeah, it's lab meat, but it's meat just grown instead of an animal grown. And then there's like a company called Air Protein that's making protein out of air. Air protein. Good <laughs> air protein. God. The future is so wild. It's wild. Like it's amazing. And then there's uh, algae. Like they're, mm. you know, algae as a protein source. So there's like inc- the ocean long term is going to be the thing that saves us. Like there are like thousands of vegetables that are protein rich and grow in the ocean that we like don't even know about. Oh, I love that. Tell me more about the ocean. Allison also loves That's the my ocean. That's other, my <gasps> other main fascination. <laughs> I mean, the ocean is everything. And I think that I have a feeling in 10 or 20 years, we'll be like, oh, yeah, all the answers were there. All Like, you know, all that um sargassum stuff or sargassus? No. Although, like, no. there's, I think it's called sargassum. And it's all this creepy seaweed that's like washing up on Florida beaches. Mm. And it sequesters a ton of carbon. And so they're well, well, now, well. I know. And so people are starting to be like, is the ocean just producing way more of this sargassum grasses because we need it. And then a startup came along and was like, okay, let's figure out how we can engineer this as a sequestration process. To like and use so like, the seaweed to capture the carbon. Yeah. And then we put the seaweed in the spaceship with Jeff Bezos. Boom. Way <laughs> Notoriously, not that, not that heavy. Not that heavy, right? Not explosive. I have a question about jobs because now I hear okay so I'm gonna have to close my family's farm okay so I'm gonna have to not work in the mines it's all very blue collar stuff yeah so how do what how do we convince those people that this isn't just elitist garbage right well first of all like if we can figure out an incentive system for farmers that is even 10% as lucrative as paying them to grow corn to Mm -hmm. put in cars which is, you know, ethanol, which is like actually 30 times worse than oil in terms of production, then a lot of farmers will be able to stay in business. I am a big believer in figuring out a credit system and in a sense of an incentive system that says you do not have to, you should not till this field and you can actually just leave it and we will pay you to leave it. As mm-hmm. opposed to we will pay you to grow corn to either put in gas tanks or feed cows. Yeah. So I think there's like a huge opportunity there to keep those farmers in business. And then when it comes to the coal jobs and the oil and gas jobs, a lot of the skill sets are actually the same when it comes to figuring out geothermal energy or sequestration, which Mm -hmm. involves basically mining, right? Digging holes in order to sequester carbon. So there's a skills transfer thing that could totally happen. We are short about 500,000 electricians country to, to do the electric transition, the decarbonization transition. And those are fantastic union jobs. So we have a real opportunity to spin up a lot of apprenticeship programs. And and I guess all I would say about that is like, we, like as a world and specifically the United States, when, you know, the US embraced globalism and globalization in the 90s and the early 2000s and the mid 2000s and said, a rising tide lifts all boats. When the Mm -hmm. rest, when the entire world is prosperous, everyone will be prosperous. But in the short term, a lot of boats sank. Yeah. And those boats voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. And we do not have to do that again. We Mm -hmm. can do this transition in a way that brings everybody along. And 
actually create, I mean, the infrastructure bill alone and a lot of these renewable projects, like they're all happening in red states and they're huge construction projects that are employing a ton of people. Mm-hmm. We just have to be really intentional about that because if we screw it up again, we just set it all back. Yeah, I wonder if if the thing that will destroy us isn't that we lack a capacity to fix the problem, but that our polarization through politicizing things prevents people from seeking the solution. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know. That's the that's the tricky part to me. It's like I have confidence in the tech. I have confidence in people's intelligence. I have confidence in these solutions, but I don't have confidence that we'll ever implement them. I know. I agree with you. And I do think that's where, for example, there are countries who are, you know, the European Union has passed the kinds of regulations and disclosure requirements and environmental laws that companies in the U.S. are already having to abide by. So there are certain parts of, you know, like we can fight all we want, but like you go to a conference that's a bunch of bankers and a bunch of CEOs and CFOs, and they're like, you can fight all you want, but like it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere because the supply chains have changed. Because Walmart is like, you have to clean up your supply chain because we are a global business and we can't do business in Europe unless you clean it up. Mm. So the market forces are just like, the market, my answer to every, the like the woke investing ESG stuff is just like, you don't have to engage with the feelings about it at all or the politics about it all. Just engage with the capitalism. If you do business in a more sustainable way, mm-hmm. it's almost always more efficient. It saves you money. If you hire a diverse workforce, you create more diverse products that mm-hmm. sell to more people. That's good for business. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have good governance, you don't get shut down and go to jail. Mm-hmm. It's just better business. So right. I'm like, just engage with the capitalism part of it. And then everybody else, like, again, I don't want to convince everybody. I know that's never going to happen. I just want the 20%. I just want to evangelize the solutions and get people to adopt them and make do them as a, and then we should just have a more straightforward conversation. Like nobody wants dirty air and right. undrinkable water and yeah. polluted weight. You know, like those are actually completely like agreed upon values Mm -hmm. that it's better to have a safe, quiet, unpolluted environment to live in. Yeah. Yeah. I love your outlook. I'm I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing. I feel I was very scared I was going to come into this and then feel terrible. And now I feel really excited and hopeful. So I really appreciate it. (laughs) It's working. Maybe I'll be a vegetarian. We'll think about it. You should be. I'll think about it. Even less is better. Even just less. A, a really lovely um, compromise that my partner did is that we don't eat meat at home. And yeah. so like when we go out to eat, sometimes he'll still have meat or he'll still whatever. But like we don't cook meat. You know, he doesn't cook meat at home anymore. OK. And that's like, I think, a really good first step. It's perfect. Everybody in the pool, even if it's a toe. It's okay. <laughs> Would you like to play a very silly game show? I would love to. (laughs) So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabe are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I pick a winner. Okay. But I'm often swayed. I'm very easily swayed. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) So um, you could have come on here and been like, actually, it's good to eat meat for the environment. I would have been like, oh, interesting. No, (laughs) you wouldn't have. No way. You would not have. That's like. No chance. Even even Allison's love of animals would have kept her. Nothing. That's what keeps me. But that's what's interesting, right? Is like people have different reasons for the same actions. Like I'm motivated morally by animals, whereas my partner's more motivated more 
by environmentalism and health. Mm-hmm. So And like wanting to continue to be married to you, probably. <laughs> It's certainly made things easier. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of 14 years tells you that 13 and a half years ago, they were approached by a beautiful friend of a friend at a house party who asked them to share one night of passion before they left the country forever. At the time... Their partner didn't think you two would last long term, so they went for it. Their entire friend group has known about this infidelity the whole time. Would you stay with this cheater? Molly's face. (laughs) Molly has the most aghast face. Even when you said, would you stay with this cheater, Molly's eyes widened. It's the friends who I would not stay with. Oh, interesting. Even though they were friends you knew through your partner? Yeah, they don't they're not my well now they're not my friends. I'm trying to think about if if Alex's friends did this, who I I adore his friends. I would feel very betrayed. Yeah. I like weirdly feel madder at the friends. Yeah. <laughs> I would be so mad because I've also like started doing I mean, we're not breaking up, but I'm like, we'll be we'll but still be friends, right? Like we'll be right? So like I don't want I I I know the friends is what pisses me off too. Me too. Like that that kind of thing. I'm not that mad at the partner, actually, unless there's a baby. Is there a baby? No, you're only together six months when this happened. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, like, no. I mean, is like, there, did the, is there did, a baby with the cheat? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No. Okay. There's no cheat baby. Okay. No cheat baby. Just one night of passion. What The way that you phrase things also, Allison, <laughs> is like one night of passion. Like, it's just so funny. Like, people would normally be like, like, have sex with. But you, the way you write these is like so torrid. Well, you got to keep it spicy, baby. More awesome that way. <laughs> Jesus. <Thank you. laughs> it's all about storytelling. It's all about storytelling. Why didn't they just tell me? They they, they yeah. also thought we wouldn't last? Yeah, like a mat like put yourself in the friend's point of view. Your friend, your good friend's been dating someone kind of casually for 6 months. You're all at a party. Your mm-hmm. friend ends goes into a room, hooks up with this other person. Like you what are you going to do? You're going to call up the the partner you don't even know that well at that point? Okay, I kind of get it. And I've been in sort of a situation similar to this. See? And there's no time when you want to bring it up later and like screw everything up. You can't bring it up later. Because happy now. Right. All right. Everyone is forgiven. (laughs) That's my official position. I know. And that person did, uh, the the friend of a friend did move away and we never saw them again. Right, right. And they don't talk to that person anymore? No. All right. I forgive them. Fine. (laughs) Fine. Yeah. Like ideally at some point they should just probably tell you themselves, your partner, but. They Whatever. do. 14 years in. 14 oh, 14 years, years later. in. Oh, you've been, t- now I've been told. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. You find out at 13 and a half years after this thing happened. I think it'd be funny to bring all, like have a party where you're like, I just found out and who here knew about this? Yes. And you know, and you know that everyone knew, but see who would admit to it. <laughs> oh, and then you dump the liars. That's chaotic. And I love it. <laughs> Okay, that's your screenplay. Yeah, that's nice. And it turns into a horror film. Yes. Where you're on a secluded island and you kill whoever didn't admit it. Yeah, because you're like, let's all the friends go to like the a Greek Isles, right, right. whatever. Oh, and this, then whoever. I will watch the crap out of this. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. Oh my God. <laughs> amazing. No one steal that. It's okay. called Everyone Knew. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. And then the so affair funny. part has to get way worse, right? Like obviously it's got to be a much more torrid situation. Maybe there is a baby. Like there's yeah. a reason that they're kill worthy if they knew it. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. wow. And you're like, how did this person find out? And then it's like you, the baby contacted you on Facebook or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're 13. 20, they, 23 and me. They're on Instagram. Yeah. They message you. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> Now it's fire. Now I'm like, uh, there's too many storylines. Um, okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 24, is about to buy a designer puppy, which is completely against your moral code. No. So mm-hmm. before they can make their first payment, you gift them with a five-year-old rescue dog. This is not at all the dog they wanted in breed or size, but they agree to care for it anyway out of guilt and don't purchase the puppy. Are you a terrible parent? What does that matter? Yeah, no, you're not a bad parent. No, I think I'm They're going to grow to love that dog. <laughs> yeah, that's you're a You're going to grow to love a rescue. Nothing loves you more than a rescue. All right, so it's okay that they, you completely ruined their plan and they don't have the dog they wanted? I don't yeah. think a designer dog. I met a very cute guy at a dog park and we like hit it off and stuff, but the do- his dog is a designer dog. Well, you don't know. You asked. He admitted. He's like, I got it from a breeder. Oh, yeah. Now, how can I abide this? Now you can't hang out with that guy anymore. I mean, bringing a pet into your child's life is among the greatest gifts that you can give them. Agreed. So That's pretty beautiful. much if you got him a rescue, they win. Unless the only scenario in which that's not ideal parenting is if somebody in the house is like severely allergic and they were going to get an, a hypoallergenic designer and then you made the like kid get asthma or whatever. I'm just saying that's an yeah. option. And in that case, I wouldn't do that. But in every other instance, 100% am I going to F up that plan to get a designer dog? <laughs> Here's what I thought you were going to say. You're like, they get you get him a five-year-old dog and then, and then the, the kid falls in love with it only for you to bring the dog to the vet and the vet go, yeah, you got lied to. This dog's 13. It's going to like die in a year. Right. Well, then you suck. gave it a beautiful life. Yeah, exactly. but the kid is now traumatized. Life. No, the kid learned about loss. Jesus Christ. Parenting is hard. It seems really hard. I do worry a lot because one of my dogs looks like a designer dog. And people Uh, often like are like, oh, is that a cockapoo? And I'm like, I don't know, because it's a rescue. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, no one has ever asked if my dog was designer. My dog was designed by who? Frankenstein? No. Dr. Frankenstein. He's so cute. But like he's he doesn't look like he should be here. Yep. (laughs) That's not true. He's just a little chihuahua. He's like legally a hamster. Okay. Our final Aww. game. Our final game is, would you forgive this liar? You invite your best friend on a group trip to Mexico, but they say they can't come because they can't afford to travel right now. Aww. While on the trip, a mutual friend confesses that the real reason they didn't go is because they couldn't imagine having to spend that much time with your partner. <gasps> would you forgive this liar? When did they say, when did they tell the truth? They didn't tell the truth. A mutual friend told you the truth. Oh, no, they, this one will tell you the truth. Me? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But the friend who- I'm learning to lie. The friend who didn't come is the one who didn't tell the truth. Right, I know. And then someone else on the trip, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Allison would have- I lie all the time now. You (laughs) lie all the time now? I'm lying all the time. I'm biting my tongue all the time. John says he's really proud of me. (laughs) Great Wow, interesting. Yeah. Well, because I'm normally very confrontational if somebody says something I don't believe in or I think is morally wrong. And um, mm. I'm learning that I'm not supposed to do that. No. OK, well, I disagree. <laughs> I also I also love to fight. But I think 
But I'm talking about in relationship stuff. Like you, to me, have been like, I don't like this person. Oh, years ago. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. And you were right is the thing. <laughs> so I feel like, well, what's wrong with my partner? They just find them incredibly annoying. I would forgive them because it's mm-hmm. my friend. They didn't want to go. I understand they didn't want to go. And and if I can't make someone spend time with someone they don't want to spend time with. And maybe they're sort of trying to spare my feelings. They don't want me to feel bad, you know? What do you I think? forgive the friend too because it's such a hard, it, it is so, you put yourself in such a bad spot when you're the person who's like, I don't like your partner. Absolutely. That's an impossible situation to be in as a friend. I know. And so that's in some ways for that, it's like the kindest thing for the friend to do, yeah. which is not go and hate the partner more, but also not try to sabotage your relationship and just hope that, you know, you come to your senses eventually. I have a very good friend who is Polly and he had two girlfriends and the the primary girlfriend I could take or leave and the secondary girlfriend, I thought she was great. And then he broke up with the secondary one because she wanted to be the first one. And I was like trying to gently be like, I'm maybe you should have promoted her and got rid of the other one. I don't know. Mm. And I'm like, I missed the second one. This first one's a dud. Oh my God. I miss I miss the old one. Can we bring her back? <laughs> I do, though, feel like I would be a little offended that the lie was about money because then I would have felt like, you know, I feel like you could have done a lie that's like, oh, my grandma's birthday parties that week. I see. Or something. Because then I'm feeling like really worried and sad for you and all uh, these things. That's true. That, like, and then you feel kind of guilty like I, I invited on, you I'm on, on the, this getaway that you can't afford. Exactly. Mm. They could have said, I just don't want to go. Well, that's rude. Like, I would not, have been hurt by that. Why? If they were like, I just don't want to go to Mexico. It's not my thing. Oh, okay. They were like, look, I'm incredibly xenophobic. Yeah. <laughs> and no. I can't. Be I mean, like, for, I've been like, for example, with my ex, like, I was like, my dream vacation would be to go to Japan and try all the food. And my ex was like, I don't want to do that because my dream vacation always involves a beach. So I was like, okay, well, then I would simply go with, with someone who would appreciate that vacation. So I could see them going, ah, you know what? Beach, not for me. Yeah, that's a better lie. Right. And so they, they go on vacation to a beach and you see it on Instagram. Sure. I'll give exactly. you the I'll give you the lie quibble, but I do forgive the friend. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone wants to go to Japan and eat their way through Japan with me, I'm that is to so fun. It. I have done that one time and it is really You did. I want to go yes. so bad. Yeah. Well, that's my that's my long term goal. You go and you have the like Kaiseki dinner where it's just like they just bring you sometimes the chef doesn't even know. It's like hours <gasps> and hours and hours of just seasonal food that's basically art. <gasps> a lot of it's very gelatinous. I want it so bad. Yeah, you got to do it. Just do it. Well, thank you so much. This was (laughs) one of my favorite interviews. I really appreciate this. And where can people find you and follow your podcast? Oh, my God. This has been so fun. I want to play this hypothetical game all day long. (laughs) Um, You can find the podcast anywhere you get podcasts. It's called Everybody in the Pool. And if you go to mollywood.co, C-O, not com, um, you will find my newsletter, which is like a deeper dive into the podcast topics every week. Oh, amazing. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. What a delight. Stick around. After the break, we'll be talking all about alcohol. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 X. Baby. 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 (laughs) I sounded like you said baby. Which is what I used to be, I guess. <laughs> I feel like that it's most fitting that you can now like really, well, I feel like you were meant to make dad jokes. 
I feel Thank like you, you so are meant much. to have kids, so you could just make dad jokes. I know, I, because I I have to say it. If it enters my brain, I have to say it out loud. <laughs> and it's not always good, but I have to do it. Uh, if my- somebody makes something that could be a portmanteau, like, and I don't, if they're like, oh, my friend, Dan Animals, and if they don't say Danimals, I, they, I can't, I have to do it. I didn't even know what a portmanteau was. Like when I you, when either. it's like, when it's like words that go together or a pun, like earlier, I love a pun. you said it was something about dirt. And then you said, let's dig into, and it took everything in me not to be like, cause dirt. <laughs> so, I, and that's sort of where I'm at mentally. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive into where you are physically because oh. we are going to be talking about alcohol. Yes. So a listener wrote in um, and commented on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash just between us, and said... Um, We're back with weekly shows. We are back with weekly shows. You can also get our merch at justbetweenuspod.com. So I had not been drinking for a while. And then I had mentioned a little bit that I was back on the party train. And then someone commented and wanted to know like what happened there. Mm-hmm. How long were you not drinking for? Like 10 months. Wow. And I enjoyed it. I think there were, I think it like helped temper a lot of stuff. I think it was like a good idea. I will say that it was in large part because of the relationship I was in and it was to like mitigate fights. So a lot of it was like part of a series of attempts to sort of save the relationship. Now, did that work? No. <laughs> so then I was sort of at, out of the relationship and I was like, well, do I stay sober? And like the thing is, um, I have a family history of alcoholism and drug use big, big time. I think there are people in my family that might still have issues with uh, substances. And I just feel like I got I, I'm in a place where I'm like, I want to like start over and be free and have fun. And like, I'm running up against this thing where a lot of queer people feel this way, where like queer events and queer spaces are largely centered around like drinking and partying. So how do you build like a new queer community without drinking and partying? And I'll let you know when it stops being fun. You know what I mean? Right now, it's so fun. Do you feel like there are negative Effects of of drinking again or not really? I mean, like hangovers a little bit. I think you can go, I think you can go back and forth, but who knows? I could also be sober again at another time. I don't know. Do you have any like restrictions in place? Like I only drink on the weekends or did you just go from like zero to whatever? Only really drink on the weekends pretty much. If I do, like mostly it's usually Friday, Mm -hmm. usually just Friday night. And then I joined a kickball team. And gay kickball is you play kickball for about an hour and you go out to the bars after. There's a little bit of a like, oh, yay, we have some like, you know, beers after our kickball game, which feels very sporty to me. (laughs) It is sporty. Yeah. But I don't know. I think it's like, you know, my dad with alcoholism, my dad said, sometimes it's not how much you're drinking. It's what happens when you drink. Mm -hmm. But like also I'm in a place where like nothing bad is happening, which is so different from the other relationships I've been in, even not just this one, but even the one before, let's say, where like we would party and then ultimately everything would go to shit. Mm. So it's like a it's just a chiller atmosphere overall, which allows for me to feel like safer, letting loose to have fun rather than like being on guard, being like, oh, my God, if I say one wrong thing when I'm drunk, I'm going to get screamed at. So, like, did did you have to sort of reconceptualize your, like, 
relationship with alcohol or like before did you think alcohol was the problem only to realize that maybe it's not a problem for you so much as like that you were with the wrong people or something? Definitely. Or or your relationships to alcohol should match up if you're if you're dating, I think. Or like that you're not using it in in a way to you're not using it in a in a way to like not confront your problems or not or or, or it's the only time you can confront your problems. Mm-hmm. Very much so also navigating back to like what am I what do I want to drink? Because like, you know, going from not not drinking for 10 months to then being like, and now I'll go for hard liquor is like, no. So like, then it's like good to be like, I can sip a seltzer and like hang out. Like it's, it's figuring out like, you don't have to go if someone like, I'm not 25. If someone hands me a shot, I don't have to take it. (laughs) And neither do 25 year olds. (laughs) No, I know. I know. But you know what I mean? Like there's not, you're not as susceptible susceptible to peer pressure. Yeah. When you started drinking again, did anybody like say anything that was rude? Well, when I didn't drink, people did not know how to. There's like a John Mulaney joke where he he was ta- a long time ago where he was talking about not drinking and that he would go to parties and people would be like, oh, you don't drink. Um, Do you want this radish? Like they really wouldn't know what to offer him. Yeah, I think people think something bad had to have happened. Like I think people think it's like some sort of relapse or like, oh, you, what happened? Like you fell off the wagon. Was it this big thing? Did you just like, you, you're not sober anymore because you went out and did a bunch of blow and like drank a bunch of whiskey. And it's like, no, <laughs> I just like took a sip of wine and was like, wine. Yeah. Like, that's fine. I mean, who knows? Also, I could be watching this back. I mean, there are so many interviews I did when I was with cis and I talked about being trans and I was like, I'm not trans. It's like, who knows? I could be having this conversation with you now. And then like two years from now, we could be like, what a funny conversation now that you are sober forever and you're in rehab, whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, I can't predict the future. I like going out. I've always liked going out. I like partying. I like meeting people. I like dancing. Like, I don't know. That's just a thing. That's a hobby that I enjoy. Cool. What's your relationship to alcohol, Melissa? In my early 20s, I drank a lot, like a lot, a lot. And then I stopped drinking. Like it, it wasn't like a, I'm actively just stopping drinking. It was, I'm not in college anymore. So I'm not. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Less yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Or I'm not going out as much anymore. And then, so it just kind of just tapered off. And I realized like it wasn't doing anything for me. Yeah. Like I wasn't, when I was drinking, I wasn't really, it, it just wasn't something. It was like, why am I drinking this? When mm. I could drink a lemonade and be fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, sometimes if I'm out, I might get something but it's not like I'm not like actively drinking like I've got bottles of liquor that I've had for probably like 10 years that are in my kitchen oh my god yeah why are people bringing you liquor I people give people liquor yeah yeah as gifts Mm -hmm. yeah I have I had a lot of um bottles of wine that I'm like okay cool but then you just re-gift them (laughs) <laughs> I just have them there for when other people come over and they're like, you don't have anything to drink? I do. Here you go. Yeah. I just like fun. And maybe I'll grow out of it. I don't know. I'm saying grow out of it. I'm 35. But if you're going, like, it's part of, like, you you like to go out and that's part of it. I love a nightclub. I love to party. Yeah. Do you feel like you're being attacked? Like, no, you I think. Like, when this person made the comment? I think people think that it's like not a hobby or that it's negative or that it's not like real. Like I meet a lot of people like that I end up working with or collaborating with or um, that side of the the business, you know, like going to stuff and and meeting people or whatever. I don't know. 
I, I feel like people judge partying because they're like, it's immature or it's, I don't know. That was one of the things with my ex, right? It was like, was like that this was sort of because I wanted to go out and, and do this stuff and dance and stay out late or whatever that I wasn't, that I shouldn't be in a relationship, which like now in my current relationship, it's like, you know what I mean? Like you can't, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that you can be in a committed relationship and go out and party. I'm pretty sure that people do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even mean party, just like stay out and like dance and then like, and then like come come home or like go to a drag show or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I do miss clubbing. I feel like you're like, you would be like kind of a star at a club, like oh, hanging I out. Am. Yeah. It's I feel like no, no men doubt. come and talk to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't leaving any place without making out with at least one dude. Right. Really? Yes. Wow. That's sort of what I'm up to now, too. Yeah. Or just like, I'm, I like meeting people. I go up and talk to people. Yeah. And you're like a little bit like you have an in where you could be like, can I get you a drink? You know, maybe they want a Diet Coke. I, sometimes I just want a Diet Coke. But mm-hmm. and I understand that Diet Coke is going to kill me. And that's fine. But like, it's just it's like, not true. Is it really? What about the aspartame? That's not it's a not, thing. It's not. It's like if you drink like 25 a day, it increases oh, okay. well, your I'm chances. Only at 24. So, yeah, you're fine. Phew. It's like normal consumption doesn't actually matter. My friend Leland was like, when we realize in 20 years that seltzer is so bad for you, like like how we don't realize that it's like cigarettes. He's like, I'm so fucked. <laughs> I think that m- mineral stuff gives you like ulcers. If you drink like a lot of if like mineral those, you water, have to drink yeah, a lot of it. Know, you right? don't drink. I was gonna ask you, what's your relationship? I've just always hated the taste of it. Yeah. So I wish that I liked drinking in a lot of ways. I think it would have made a lot of social events easier. But now I'm just at a place where it's like I don't like alcohol. I don't really want to force myself to drink something I don't like. There's right. like a couple cocktails I've had in the last few years that I like. Like we have one cocktail in Santa Barbara that I get once a year on John's birthday and then I get a little drunk. Um, and the unfortunate <laughs> thing is that drunk Allison is the funniest person I know, in the that's world. the worst part is I'm my best self. Drunk Allison is so funny. Hi, Allison is really funny. Hi, Allison Thank is you. really funny. Thank you. But drunk no one Al- ever talks about hi, Allison. Oh. It's always just drunk Allison this, Allison. drunk Allison I mean, that. did a live yeah. show. Hi, Allison's then- funny. At your bachelorette, you're... Drunk <laughs> Allison is so funny. So funny. Some people, their senses are dulled, but not you. I haven't experienced it. <laughs> it's 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 pretty great. I'm kind of at a place where it's like, I for a long time, I was like the search for the perfect drink. But now it's like, who cares? I have weed. I don't need yeah. to drink. It's so expensive to drink. Like, oh my God. Like if you go out to dinner and you get a drink, it's like adding so much. Yeah. It makes going out to dinner such a bigger endeavor financially. I have been like making cocktails with my almond cow, but like. Non-alcoholic. Oh, mocktails. Oh, that's the thing is now like if we're out like with another couple or something, I'll get a mocktail. Yeah. Because then it's like, oh, we're all having a fun thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I'll be like, if I added vodka to it, it would really hit. But yeah, I'm going to sleep in two minutes. (laughs) Yeah. It's also like not meditative, but like I'm I'm going out. I'm in an area of town. I know I'm going to run into people. My friends are there. And then and then I have to walk around that area during the day because I live in that area and I like see revolver during the day. And I'm like, oh, don't look at me. <laughs> don't look at me for what I have done in you the night before. <laughs> don't gaze upon me. But also transition was hard. Like, I think if I had to be if I had to be transitioning and sober at the same time, I mean, there's so much social anxiety tied up in that. 
And like, if I just need a little seltzer to be able to feel okay in a space, like, okay. Yeah. Life is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like there are people I know who don't drink that much, but then when they do drink, it's like, why do you have a black eye now? You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I'm not living that life. I'm just like kissing some people. (laughs) I I think it's, I'm in a party phase and you know, that's party phase has lasted about 10 years. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to come party with you one night. Please. Nobody like I try to get people. I meet people. I'm like, they're scared. Like they're like, I don't want to no, like I'm not scared. Yeah. I'm like, come out in WeHo. Like come out in I come out to, to the clubs. And I had a friend that lived in WeHo when I first moved here and we were out all the time. Yeah. Come out to the clubs. Once you it's it seems scary. But once you're there and you're dancing and like it's part of the community, it's like it's so nice. Well, for some people, not everybody likes that stuff. Like I don't like loud places. Yeah. Alex wears earplugs. Oh, that's smart. (laughs) I think a thing that like I think about a lot with like weed and stuff is like, okay, this is my relationship to it now. But like there's allowing the possibility of that relationship to change and to like kind of monitor like, like what is the impact? What, you know, like how do I feel about my relationship? Like, is it a goal for me to, to reduce? Is it a goal for me not getting locked into? And this is how it shall always be. Right. I think it's like helpful with this stuff. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I think there's a judgment. And there will be people that disagree with that and people that yeah. agree. You know, it's like we don't all have to agree about everything all the time. No, no. Nope. <laughs> On that note, what is our ratings for these episodes? Because I'm sure we'll all have different ones. Right. I really tied that in. Six out of five. Everyone knew. <laughs> oh, I will do 94 out of 20 climate solutions. Nice. I like that. I'll do 30 out of 20. Let's just have a drink, man. If you want. (laughs) Come out with me. Thank you to Molly Wood for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production. Hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever.